Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. On uh, October of this past year, <clears throat> Alyssa Milano posted this tweet. If you have been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. She woke up the next morning to see that 30,000 women had responded to this tweet overnight. Within 24 hours, <clears throat> that number mushroomed to over 12 million. Now this, of course, wasn't the first time that women had spoken up about the sexual abuse that they had suffered. But what was different about this time was that their collective voices began to bring very real consequences to their abusers. Starting with Harvey Weinstein, powerful man who in the past had been able to use their money and their positions of power as cover for their sexual abuse, found themselves suddenly thrown out of their positions of power. And starting with Harvey, it was as if a dam broke loose. Almost every week since then, we've learned of new high-profile men accused of sexual abuse. Men like Al Franken and Louis C.K. and Ben Affleck. Kevin Spacey and Dustin Hoffman and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and James Franco, just to name a few. The Me Too movement brought to light what many have referred to as an open secret. And that is the sexual harassment and abuse that women often have to endure, especially in the workplace. In a recent uh, survey, 60% of all American women report that they have been sexually assaulted or abused on the job. 60%. Now, as a father to one daughter and a grandfather to four granddaughters, that makes me want to cry and scream all at the same time. How did we become a culture that treats our women with such disdain? How is it that we as a culture empower and enrich men who treat women as objects to use and then discard them once their sexual desires are gratified. Time Magazine named the Silence Breakers as their 2017 Person of the Year. The Silence Breakers are the voices of those that launched the Me Too movement. And in the article in this edition of Time, uh, they said that this Me Too movement represents the highest velocity shift in our culture since the 1960s. Now that's a very interesting observation because I think there's a clear link between these two cultural shifts. The shift of the 1960s we've referred to already in this message series. It's referred to now as the sexual revolution. And that's when the idea that sex should no longer be restricted was introduced into our culture. And since the late 1960s, it has in our culture been a steady march to abolish one sexual restriction after another. So it really shouldn't be that surprising that now, some 50 years later, our culture finds itself rocked by the wave of sexual destruction and pain that has been exposed to by the Me Too movement. Now in this message series, we've been looking at the restrictions that God has placed on our sexuality and why he has put those restrictions in place. Restrictions that our culture now long ago discarded and now even laughs at as quaint and antiquated. And the reason for these restrictions is for our blessing and for our protection. And that's because everyone eventually will feel the pain of ignoring God's restrictions. 
But sadly, when it comes to ignoring God's restrictions on our sexuality, it is usually the women that end up paying a higher price than the men. So today I want to speak to the tremendous value that women have and the corresponding vulnerability that comes with that value and then the sexual protection that we all need, but especially the women. So let's begin where we should. Women are valuable. Now, according to God, men and women have equal value. But historically, cultures have tended to value men over women. And the basis for the value of both men and women is found internally, not externally. Here's what we read in Psalm 139, verse 13. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. What happened before the knitting together of our physical bodies? Well, it says God created our inmost being. I love the way the message translation says it in this moment. It says, you shaped me first inside, then out. Now, what is your inmost being? Well, it's the invisible part of who you are. It's what you think, it's what you feel, and it's what you choose. In a word, it's, it's your soul. It's the essence and the core of yourself. And it's very important to understand the order in which God put us together, first inside, then out. Why first inside, then out? I mean, why not start with the body? Why not create the body first and then kind of add a soul to it or drop a soul into it? Well, the order points to the very center and core of who we are. We are not first a body with some soulish upgrades added later. No, we, we are first a person that is now reflected through these bodies that we have. Our bodies have value, but the core of who we are is, is not in our bodies. It's the invisible us. Now, we can't get to know each other and listen to each other and value each other just as souls floating around invisibly. We, we are in our bodies. And so when we feel an emotion, it's going to be through our bodies that we feel that emotion. When we make a choice, when our souls choose to do something, it's going to be our hands and our feet that carry out that choice. And if you want to know what I'm thinking, and I want to know what you're thinking, you're going to have to listen to this voice, and I'm going to have to listen to the voice in your body. And the problem that we have when it comes to value is we can't see a soul. I can't see your soul, you can't see my soul. And so we tend to anchor our own value and the way we value other people in the things that we can see, not the things that we can't see. We value ourselves and other people based on what our hands do and what our voices say and in how our bodies look. Now, when it comes to bodies, there is little debate about who wins the beauty contest. Women do. But that advantage can become a huge sexual disadvantage for women. And that occurs when men look no deeper than a woman's body and see little value beyond what is visible. This is one of the reasons why God has restricted sex to marriage. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons. What it does, particularly for men, really for both, but this is really important for men to grab this, it forces men to look deeper at a woman than just the physical. 
But as sex has become easier and easier for men to get outside of marriage, it is the women who have ended up paying a steeper price. Many have sadly begin to, begun to believe the, the lie that their value really is external, that it really is only skin deep. I think one of the great messages of the Me Too movement is women standing up and declaring the truth that they are not just objects to use, that they are multidimensional beings whose value is rooted in who they are, not in how they look. That message needs to be said over and over again. You see, it's by honoring the sexual restrictions of marriage that men and women both have the best chance at seeing the real basis of our value, that our value is anchored in who we are, not in how we look. In Proverbs 6, verse 30 through 35, we read this. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet, if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. This was the law at the time for thievery. But a man who commits adultery, he has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. Why? It's because jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, no matter how great it is. This this passage, passage addresses a common misconception that has led to the removal of many restrictions, sexual restrictions in our culture, and that is that Our sexual desires are just an appetite, a physical appetite, like any other appetite. We talked several weeks ago about, for us, why sex is such a big deal, and it is not just a physical physical experience. There's much more attached to it. But in our culture, we've equated sex, really, to food. It's just a physical appetite, and so if it's not wrong to eat when you're hungry, how can it be wrong to have sex when you feel that desire? What this passage is saying is, Try telling that to the husband of the woman you just slept with. Try explaining it to the husband that that you were hungry sexually. And see if, if that would bring any compassion or understanding to his face. Of course it wouldn't. Why not? Well, it's because he sees that his wife is far more valuable than just a loaf of bread to meet someone else's physical needs. There's much more to her than just a body. She is a person made in the image of God, not an object, a person that he loves. And good marriages force both men and women over and over again to see who this person really is and to get to know this person over time, far beyond the visible. This husband, spoken of in Proverbs, knows that she is a multidimensional being with thoughts and plans and feelings, but this guy just treated her like a one-dimensional object, like a loaf of bread. Now, if he'd stolen a loaf of bread because he was starving, well, there would probably be some mercy that would extend to him, especially if he offered to pay for the food. 
But sex, well, that, that's a very different matter. If he offered to pay the husband, boy, he'd better be ready to run. And that's what it says. Blows and disgrace are his lots. You better hope he's in shape because this guy's coming for him. And that's because good husbands know that their wives are not objects to be used, to be bought, to be discarded. Now, everyone should know this, whether they're married or not, whether they're men or women. Everyone should know this about all of us, that our value is not skin deep. But unrestricted sex reduces all of us eventually to nothing more than just French fries to desire, consume, and then discard when we're done. But it is most often, not always, but most often it is the men who tend to do more of the consuming and more of the discarding. And that brings us to the second point I want to talk about this morning, and that is women are vulnerable. They are vulnerable. The first woman's name was Eve. Eve means life giver. Life giver. What a perfect name for the first woman. Women alone have been given the ability to carry life and to give birth. And before sin entered into the world, there was no death. So the joy of life didn't come with the risks and the inevitability of pain and death, but now it does. The moment every child is born, the reality also comes with that, that there will also be a day when that child dies. And between the day of their birth and the day of their death, there will be a lot of pain. That's what's true now of a broken and fallen world affected by sin. Now, both men and women, of course, experience this reality. But it is the life givers, the women, who feel this more deeply. And that's because the capacity to carry and give birth to life comes not only with a different shaped anatomy, but with a different shaped soul. We get a glimpse into the differences of the male and the female soul, not just body, but soul as soon as sin enters into the world. Because after sin, God describes the impact that sin is going to have on both women and on men, and it's a very different description. Now, there's a lot of the impact that we share and we feel equally, but there's some aspects of a sinful and broken and fallen world that women feel differently than men and men feel differently than women. And so after sin, God describes the gender-specific impacts of sin. And here's what he says about the women in Genesis 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, God then goes on to say that for the men, farming is going to be a real challenge. Lots of weeds, lots of obstacles. Well, the obvious question is this. Well, can these impacts be avoided if men just decide not to farm? I mean, most men don't farm anymore, so are we kind of scot-free on this one? And what if women decide not to get pregnant? Do they get to avoid those impacts? And, and if women do decide to get pregnant, have, 
that things like epidurals reduced the effects of sin for women and pesticides made farming much more easy for men. Well, clearly, God is describing something far deeper than just the act of farming or the, the giving of birth. Those are images or moments that describe something much deeper than those moments. God is identifying the primary place of struggle for each gender. And for the women, the life-giving nerve endings of their souls will allow them to feel the precarious nature of life more fully than men do. Now, we feel this, but we can be pretty oblivious to this. It's the women that, that sense risk much sooner than the men do. It's the women that feel loss much more deeply than the men do. Now, I'm not saying we don't feel this and we're not aware of any risk, but if you were to give us the scale, the women would feel this much more deeply. And that's why generally, not always, but generally it's the dads who throw their kids up in the air, not the moms. Now, if you ever see a dad throwing a child up in the air and the mom's close by, look at the mother's face. It's fascinating. Now, if she's seen it for a while, she's probably got a good game face on, but especially the early mothers, she just cannot believe that this little one is being tossed in the air. And the mothers will look on with concern, and they can only really relax when the child is safely back on the ground or in the arms of the father or mother. And this is also why, for women, the introduction into womanhood, when puberty sets in, begins with a monthly cycle of pain. And the pain is not just a physical pain, it's an emotional pain. Why? As her body prepares to have the capacity to give life, to have children, her emotions are also preparing for the roller coaster ride that life represents now in a fallen world. When our two children were born, I lost a lot of sleep. But it was my wife who endured a lot of pain. And when on two different occasions we lost two children to miscarriages in the fourth month of pregnancy, boy, it hit us both. But you know, from where I sit, it was much harder on my wife. Years later, she keeps thinking of those two. So the ability to give life now comes with tremendous vulnerability. Now, you don't have to get married and have kids to experience how vulnerable you are as a woman in this world. That's why there are lots of organizations set up for the advocacy of and protection of women. I can't think of a single one designed just to protect men. We know that women are vulnerable in this world. You don't need to get married and have kids to know this. But if you do take the risk of getting married and having children, you will experience the full force of your vulnerability as a woman. You will feel it physically when you give birth to your children, and you will feel it personally in your relationship with your husband. That's why the second part of the impact says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
My modern translation would say it this way, you're stuck with this guy forever. <laughs> now that can be a good thing or that can be an awful thing. But even if it's a good thing, it's got its frustrating moments. I mean, even if you decide to divorce him, he gonna, he's going to be able to keep bringing pain into your life through those kids. You're never going to get away from this guy. That's why you want to marry a man who is a weed killer and not a fantasy chaser. I'm not going to take the time to get into how the fall impacts men. That's for another time. But you want to find a guy who, when they face the weeds of life, when they face the challenges of life, they approach them with courage and strength and trust in God rather than, I'm done with this field. I'm moving on to greener pastures. That's the struggle for the guy. Now, the women's liberation movement of the 60s, it really came alongside the sexual revolution. It didn't necessarily drive it solely, but it was a part of it. The women's liberation movement accurately understood, I think, the vulnerability of women, and they sought to free women sexually. They, they, they had it accurate. They rightly recognized that sex was the place where women were most vulnerable. And so if women could be freed sexually, then they could be safer. They could be less vulnerable. You know, if a woman got pregnant, well, the guy, as I said, he can go off and search for greener pastures. But the woman stuck at least for nine months carrying this child. In order to have a child that the guy only invests a moment of sexual pleasure, but the woman gets nine months of hormonal body-altering upheaval. And if she's married to the father, most often her career, if she had one, would end. And his would continue on and flourish. And so the goal of the women's liberation movement was to free women from men. Sexually, by means of birth control and abortion and career advancement. But you know, now, 50 years later, women are still paying the higher price. And that's because if they choose to have an abortion as life givers, they feel the guilt of taking a life far more deeply than the fathers do. I've talked to women that have had an abortion and they, they carry it with them. They struggle to accept the forgiveness of God for that, which is available. Because they're life givers, not life takers. And so if they choose to free themselves sexually by abortion, boy, that's a deep price for them to pay. Not even to mention the price of the life that doesn't ever see the light of day. And if they decide that they want both children and a career, boy, they pay a high price for that one. Every study that I've read or seen of women who try to accomplish both discover they're working a lot harder than the guy because they're life givers. The father is able to relate to their children in a different way than the women. 
and they dedicate more time to their careers. Women struggle with that. And after 50 plus years of attempted liberation, I think the truth is this. This, this. this would be what God would say on this based on Scripture. Women cannot be liberated from their vulnerability. They are life givers. And with that great gift comes the attendant risks. You can't just free them sexually without paying a deeper price than they were paying before. Pretending that women are not vulnerable only increases their vulnerability. Because with great value, life-giving value, comes great vulnerability. And with great vulnerability comes the need for great protection. But in order to protect women, we must understand the environment in which abuse occurs. And that brings us to the third and final point this morning. Abuse is incremental. It's incremental. You see, every act of abuse that has been brought to light by the Me Too movement didn't just occur out of the blue. Every act of abuse had a history to it, had a beginning point. For example, Charlie Rose, this is the creepiest one I heard in the whole thing. Charlie Rose didn't just show up one day at work wearing only a bathrobe. That didn't just happen one day. There was a progression that led to that creepy act of sexual abuse. Now, what's interesting to me is that for decades, our culture has been, and really Hollywood has been leading the charge in this screaming no restrictions, no restrictions, no restrictions on sex. And now, finally, they've stumbled on one restriction left. What's the one remaining sexual restriction in our culture? It's the word consent. That's the only restriction we've got left. And so that's what's being talked about now in the Me Too movement. Is men need to learn what consent means. It's the only line of sexual protection that's talked about now is consent. And what consent means is if the woman says no, then the guy should stop. And that's right. But the challenge is this. In the work environment, particularly when the man doing the abusing holds the power, consent can be less clear than you would think. You see, it's very hard for a woman to say no and to know when to say no and by doing so risk her future employment and maybe her entire career. That leaves women with at least a, a pause. Is this bad enough to say no or, or is that bad enough? When do I say no? Now, men, let's just be honest. As men, we don't understand what it's like to be women in this position. We don't know what it's like. Because it almost never starts for the women as a clear request for sex that will invite a clear response of consent or non-consent. It's always a, and maybe an inappropriate comment or an unwanted touch or brush that happens so fast that the woman is left speechless wondering, what just happened? 
Now, the lack of a strong and firm no may be interpreted by guys as consent, but it is far from that. You know, many of the men accused of abuse in recent months are claiming that the sex was consensual. That, that's the common defense now among these men. It, it was consensual sex. You know, they're not denying that they had sex, you know, because that didn't matter anymore in this culture. They're denying that it wasn't consensual. But if you listen to the women talk about those exact same encounters, there was nothing consensual about it. So for the protection of women, and honestly men, both, God draws a line long before the question of consent. Here's what he says on this matter. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4. But among you, speaking of those who've decided to follow Christ, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking about these matters. They're just out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, there's two sets of three that are described, two lists of three that are given in this passage. And it starts with where sexual abuse always starts, with a hint. That's where it always starts, a hint. A lingering look, a suggestive comment, an uninvited touch. Now, the reason that it most often starts with a hint is because the risk of hinting is very low. You know, if you send out a sexual hint and someone calls you on it, all you have to do is say, oh, no, I didn't mean anything by that. I didn't mean to touch you. I just stumbled as I walked by. I, you, you can cover yourself. You misread me. No, I didn't mean anything by that. You see, a hint leaves no evidence, but it sends a strong message. Then, after the hinting, comes the expansion phrase, or phase, rather. The next thing is, or of any kind of impurity. Once you start with hints, then hints eventually are expanded into different kinds of impurity. Different methods, different attempts are made. If the hint was a verbal hint, then the words get a little more impure. They started with a little tint, and they get darker and creepier and more and more sexual. They are expanded into a different kind of immorality. If it was a verbal hint, maybe it expands into a touch. If it was a touch, maybe it expands into some words. It goes from just kind of one lingering look to more lingering looks and a longer stare. What this really is, is this is a predator circling its prey. They haven't pounced yet. And if anyone goes after them, they can, they can flee. They're hidden by the grasses. And they're moving around. They're circling their prey. 
They're looking for the chance. The next item on the list is greed. What does greed have to do with sexual morality and abuse? Well, the the word greed in the Greek language here simply means to desire more. It applies to sex as much as it does to money. You know, unrestricted, both money and sex want what? More money and sex. You know, it's no accident that many, not all, but many of the men that are doing the, the abusing that we're hearing about are very wealthy individuals. Now, I'm not saying that a person has money, they're a sexual predator. But what I am saying is that once a person begins to feed the greed of wanting more, it often expands both in money and in sex. This has been true throughout history. Unrestricted financial greed will often turn into unrestricted sexual greed if the restrictions are not honored for both. Now, the first three deal with the actions that that tend to lead to sexual morality and abuse. The early stages, the stages far before consent is a real clear line to be crossed or not crossed. The next three are about words that often go along with the deeds. Here's what it says, nor should there be obscenity. Just words that are about sex. Foolish talk. Just stop, you're married or you're not married. Just stop talking about having sex with someone else that you're not married to. It's just stupid. Or coarse joking. What's coarse joking? Really, what's this whole category? Well, both men and women, we know what this means. But guys, we really know what this means. That's because you get a bunch of guys together, and the conversation can degenerate pretty quickly about women. When I heard it first, I was told it's called locker room talk. I don't know if that's still a thing now, but... Well, you get guys together, and the conversation about women can really degrade fast. Now, no women have been technically abused because they're not even there. But this kind of talk creates a view of women that is degrading to them and to the one who made them. And it lays the groundwork for immorality and abuse because it normalizes in conversation what should never be normal. Man, this, if you're ever in these conversations, you have got to speak up and defend the women and leave if it goes on. I know you'll pay a price for it, but that's what men do. They pay a price to protect the women. And too many men, too many Christian men, think that this is just what guys do. It's not what Christian men do. It may be what guys on the job do where you work. Maybe what guys do in the locker rooms where you exercise. But it's not what Christian men do. Women are valuable and vulnerable, they are life givers. 
Not just the ones who can have babies, but the ones who again and again breathe life into what we as men would have discarded long ago. You know, my wife and I, we, we are in some really good relationships that I would have not invested time in long ago. She's breathed life into those relationships that I would have discarded. Not because of any choice, but just neglect. Women are life givers. We need this across the spectrum of life. They are to be protected, not used, not abused. And anything less is out of step with the God who created them. Now, if you've decided to follow Christ, your goal, men and women, is to be in step with God. That's what it means to be holy. This term has come up several times in this series. Holy means to align your life with God's values. In a sense, God, what God says and what he values is your compass setting. Not what the group is saying that you're in right now, not what the culture is saying that you live in right now, but what God has said. That's your compass setting. And the things on this list, these lists, these six things that I've just mentioned, well, about the first three, it says this, these are improper for God's holy people. Improper means it just doesn't fit with the goal of being holy. It may be proper in this group, but man, it's not proper in the holy group. They are, this is what it says about the second list, they're just out of place. They don't belong. This kind of talk does not belong with those who are trying to be holy. These lists, they go in the opposite direction of what is pleasing to God. So the question for men and for women really isn't just consent. That's a weak and feeble last-ditch effort attempt on a culture that has already jettisoned all restrictions and is now trying to find the brakes they're throwing out this consent thing, and it is not going to stop this train. It doesn't have the power to do it. The question is not consent. Because consent is, what can I get away with? Well, the human heart, when it wants to get away with something, history has shown it'll get away with it. Consent will not stop the human heart. The question is not consent. The question is holiness. What is it that pleases God? And will this statement, will this interaction, will this thought move me towards holiness or away from holiness? That's the question. And if that's the question, then long before anyone's even thought of consent, the devastation is avoided. The women are protected and the men are protected. Back in January, the Time's Up campaign was launched by 300 Hollywood actors and actresses. If you watched the Oscars, you saw a lot of the men, particularly wearing these Time's Up pins on their lapels. And what the Time's Up campaign is, basically, is it's a, a legal defense fund to help women who have been abused to bring justice against the men who have sexually assaulted them. I know part of it is Hollywood trying to clean up their image, because after decades of feeding us sexual filth, they're just appalled that all this is happening, and so they, they need to look like they're ahead of this. But when I first saw that Time's Up campaign, my thought was, that's right. 
Time's up. And the reason I thought that is because God has been running his own Time's Up campaign for a long time now. You never know when Time's Up. But God does not need the financial backing of Hollywood to run his Time's Up campaign. He has been running it and will continue to run it. And because he is merciful, he will allow things sometimes to go longer than we think he should. But boy, when time is up, time is up. So just one verse later from the ones we read, here's what we read in Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. What's God talking about here? He's just talked about, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. He's saying, don't let anyone fool you. God's wrath is coming. Now, for those of you like me who are fathers of daughters and maybe granddaughters, you know what God's talking about, right? I mean, if anyone abuses my daughter or my little granddaughters, oh, man. You better run. I'm not the fastest guy or the strongest guy, but I'll be the angriest guy. And what this verse is saying is, guys, don't you for a moment think that God is turning a blind eye to the abuse of his daughters. Don't you think he is listening to you as you demean them in conversation? As a culture... We have ignored the restrictions that God has placed on sex, and now it is the women who are paying a terrible price. Men are too, but by the women are paying the bigger price. So women, let me say this to you. We grieve over the abuse that you have suffered. Those of us who have not abused you, we, we grieve for what you have suffered in this culture. You are precious in the eyes of God. And as men, we should do everything in our power to protect you and to honor you. Not just with our actions, but with our words. And men, I charge you in the sight of God to value the women that you see. And if the opportunity presents itself, be courageous, be a man. A real man, not a leering, creepy man, a real man. And defend them with your words and with your deeds. And in this culture of unrestricted sex, we need, more than ever now, we need men and women who have decided to be God's holy people. Not God's perfect people. We've all been affected by the fall. We're all broken in some ways. We've all got our pasts but a holy people who have decided to honor God's restrictions and the people that they protect. A people who have the courage in this culture to be the increasing minority, to be mocked because we take God's restrictions seriously. And so as we end this series, I want to invite you to read these verses with me again in Ephesians 5, 3 through 4. And I want to ask you to stand and read this together with me. And by standing, I know that not everyone can say this, so I'm not saying you're saying this. 
But if you can, as we read these words, I want you, if you're willing to, to say to God, I'm willing to be this kind of man, I'm willing to be this kind of woman in this time, in this place, in this culture of unrestricted sex. So read this with me out loud. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, here we go. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual morality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Are improper for God's holy people. Which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. But if we do this, may God bless our efforts and may this expand. Let's pray. You can stay standing. Father, we, uh, we stand before you as men and women who are broken and who have been broken. We grieve particularly over, the, over your daughters who have been abused at the hand of this culture that we are a part of. And God, we pray for their protection and for their healing. And God, we pray for courage to stand up against the absolute insanity that is our culture right now that has become normal. We thank you for the gift of your restrictions and of the protections that come with them. Help us to learn, as we talked about last week, to control our own bodies in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like people who have no reference for you in their lives. We thank you for the women, for the life that they give in all areas. And we pray for their protection. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.